Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father, having trusted in your Son as our Savior. And Father, we are thankful that we can gather together this evening, that we can enjoy this time of uh, freedom uh, to study your Word, to come together in prayer and in discussion. Father, we also take a moment to uh, bring uh, the nation of Israel to your attention. We come before your throne of grace, and we ask that you will uh, protect them, Father, that you will uh, protect them from the attacks that they are undergoing at this moment, and that you will intervene in that situation, Father, and put a stop to those unjustified attacks. And we just pray that you will give their leadership, uh, the leadership of Israel, wisdom and courage and also their soldiers, that they will be able to fight uh, honorably and with valor, and uh, to resist that weakening instinct of self-preservation that can often beset a soldier on a field of battle, and that you will be able to strengthen them and encourage them to be able to stand firm and to fight off their enemies. And Father, we pray for ourselves and for our own country here in America. Uh, we seem to be under great spiritual attack in our country, and we seem to be experiencing great spiritual and moral decline across the country. Although I must confess, Father, I am encouraged at some of the youth that I see who love you and who are taking your word seriously. But Father, our nation continues to be under attack uh, at the academic level, at the financial level, uh, in every different, in every way, Father, we are under attack and our freedoms are at jeopardy. And I just pray for our country, Father, that we will be able to stand against this and I pray for revival in our own land. Father, I just pray tonight as we pick up in our continued study on soteriology that this will be a time of fruitful understanding as we take into account your word. Uh, we pray that we will be challenged by these things, Father, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, uh, continuing our study in soteriology. We started off with an introduction into soteriology, which took us four hours to get through, and it was a lovely, wonderful time of study into that particular subject. I'm a little bit behind on producing some videos, but uh, I'll get those updated shortly. We moved into the doctrine of the Trinity. We talked about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we are now in the section where we are looking at the role of each member in the Godhead who play a role with regard to our salvation. So teriology is the study of salvation. It comes from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means a study of or a word about. And so soteriology is a word or a study of salvation, and that's what we're doing in this series of lessons. Now at this point, we are looking at the role of God the Son. We talked about the role of God the Father, that from eternity past, He planned our salvation. He commissioned God the Son to come into the world, and God the Son agreed to the commission and was sent into the world. And we know that nearly 2,000 years ago, God the Son came into the world and took upon himself humanity. In theology, we call that the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union is a, is a theological term, and it refers to the fact that simultaneously Jesus is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is the theanthropic person, or the God-man. And so he is, at the same time, God and man. He came into the world, and he lived an absolutely righteous life. He committed no sin. And he went to the cross, and he died a death he did not deserve. 
in order that we might have a life that we could never earn because we cannot earn our salvation. It comes to us as a gift from God. And a gift means that it is paid for in full by the other person. If we have to pay for it, it's not a gift. It means we bought it. Uh, but salvation comes to us freely as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And so when God the Son came into the world, he accomplished for us what we could not accomplish in ourselves, that is our salvation. Now, up to this point, we have looked at uh, the role of God the Son in our study over the last few weeks, and we have looked at his deity. We have looked at his coming in hypostatic union, that is the incarnation. You hear the term incarnation used with regard to Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. The preposition in, E-N, means inside of or with. And the word carnos is the word we bring into the English for meat. If you've ever had chili con carne, you've had it with meat. And so when we talk about God incarnate, we're talking about in flesh, that is in humanity. He is fully human. He is 100% God and at the same time 100% man. He is one person with two natures, fully divine, fully human. And he came in hypostatic union. And the word hypostatic is just a technical word, and it refers to the union of these two natures into one person. We talked about how at times he spoke from his deity, such as when he said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. That is a reference to the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the doubling of the Hebrew verb, Hayah, which is the verb to be in the Old Testament. And it means I am that I am, and it speaks to the eternality of God. And it was the name that God used with Moses, remember, in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, when Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? And God said, Yahweh, I am. And Jesus used the Greek equivalent of that when he said, when, when he said Before Abraham was, Agoa me, I am. And the Jews understood his claim to deity. And, of course, John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he is at the same time God and man. We talked about the sinlessness of Christ. We talked about the humility of Christ, because when he came into the world, he did not come into the world for his benefit. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's me. That's you. And he came to serve. In fact, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he came into this world to represent the love of the Father. Romans 5, 8 says, While we were yet sinners, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is part of the love and the humility of God the Son while he is in the world. We talked about his suffering, and we'll talk about that more here in a few weeks when we get into the suffering of Christ. We'll spend a, a few lessons talking about that. We worked through Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Uh, we looked at those passages. We will spend some time talking about his beatings, his crucifixion, and what he endured both physically and spiritually. 
but now we are in the section where we are, we spent a night also talking about the atonement, which is very, very important theologically, very important. Uh, and tonight we're picking up on a subject that is rarely addressed uh, in the field of soteriology, and that is the eschatological aspects of soteriology pertaining to the role of God the Son. Uh, and so eschatology is the study of end times or end things. It's the study of prophecy. Now, roughly 25% of the Bible was prophecy at the time it was given. Uh, and that's a huge portion of the Bible uh, being prophetic in nature. Now, prophecy, if you ever study prophecy, it falls into two categories. We talk about prophecy that has been fulfilled. And then we talk about prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. Like, for example, we think of the prophecies pertaining to Jesus at his first coming. We think about that he was born in the city of Bethlehem, that he was born in the line of David, right? Uh, that he was born to a virgin. Uh, in the, in the, uh, the theological term for that is we call parthenogenesis, virgin conceived, virgin born. And so there were prophecies that spoke about the first coming of Christ. Well, there are prophecies that speak about his second coming, and that's what we're going to look at tonight are those prophecies that speak about the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And these have soteriological significance because in both of these examples, when Christ returns, he will save his people. At the rapture, we are saved out of this world. Personally, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the world is becoming more and more crummy. That's the politest way that I can put that. Uh, but the world is becoming more and more crummy, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to being uh, rescued out of this world, and hopefully the rapture will occur soon. I think that there are certain uh, stage-setting events that are going on right now around the world that would seem to anticipate the rapture of the church at any time. We see Israel being in the land since 1948. That's prophetically significant, but Israel being in the land, check. Uh, we think of there being discussion about a one-world government, check. We hear discussions about a one-world economy, check. We see a rise of persecution among Christians, check. I mean, all these things are significant, and there seems to be a lot of stage setting, such that when the rapture of the church occurs, the next prophetic event uh, will be the signing of the covenant between Antichrist and unbelieving Israel. The temple will be built. And there is discussion about the building of a third temple. Even right now in Israel, in Jerusalem, this language is, is, uh, is quite prevalent. And uh, from what I understand, most of the material has already been uh, constructed, and it can easily be assembled in short time. And that needs to happen. So the world stage seems to be set more now than at any other time in history. And, uh, and you know, this excites me. Uh, because it makes me look towards the skies with greater frequency in anticipation of the Lord. But I put together this little chart here. I have this little chart here, <clears throat> and it's a timeline of the end times. And to the far left, we see the present church age. That is where we live. We are in the dispensation of the church age. Uh, the next prophetic event that we are waiting for is the rapture of the church. That is the next prophetic event that will occur. Now, when the rapture of the church occurs, 
uh, there will be a brief window of time in which Antichrist will rise to power. We don't know if that'll be seconds, hours, days, weeks, months. We don't know. But Antichrist will be identified because he will sign a peace treaty, a covenant with unbelieving Israel in the land for seven years. Daniel 9.27 speaks of this quite plainly. Other passages uh, point to this as well. And uh, this will begin the period known as the time of the tribulation. But the tribulation is broken into two periods. The first three and a half years is called a time of tribulation. The second three and a half years is called the great tribulation because the uh, the sufferings, the, uh, the persecutions, the wrath of God poured out upon the earth and upon mankind increase as time goes on. Then at the end of the second year, uh, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we have the return of Christ at his second coming. That's Revelation 19. Um, and then there will be the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And after the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, we have the eternal, uh, we have the eternal state. So now, as it relates to soteriology and the issue of salvation, because that's our topic, remember, so we want to keep our eye on the bouncing ball. We're going to be hitting lots of things, but we have to keep focus on these things. So the eschatological subject, or the prophetic subject of the rapture of the church, is briefly presented here under the study of soteriology, because it is regarded as a form of deliverance. It is regarded as a form of deliverance. And who is the one who rescues us at the time of the rapture? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, because we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, when Messiah returns at the end of the church age, he will deliver his church from an evil world and a coming judgment that will last for seven years. Now, a distinction here is here drawn between Jesus coming for his saints at the rapture, and Jesus coming with his saints at his second coming. Because at the rapture, Jesus doesn't touch the earth. He comes down in the air, and we, the Christians, wherever we are on the planet, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I suspect there's going to be a lot of high-fiving, high-fiving going on while we go up into the clouds. But we go up and we meet the Lord in the air, and then we go with him to heaven. And there we will stay for seven years. Now, there's a number of things that will go on during that time. The Bema Seat judgments, we will receive our rewards during that time. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15 and other passages. But the rapture of the church is, is, is Jesus coming for his saints, at the end of the tribulation, we will return with Christ. We will return with him at the second coming. He's going to come back. Revelation 19 makes it very clear that he will come back riding on a horse at the time of his second coming. When he comes to put down rebellion, and he will put down all rebellion, both satanic, spiritual, uh, demonic, and human, he will, uh, he will return and he alone will uh, suppress all rebellion upon the earth. Now, apparently, we're going to come with him. We're going to, he, uh, there will be saints returning with him at this time. And, uh, and so we're going to be riding on horses as well. Now, if you've never ridden a horse, don't worry about it. You'll get your horse and you'll get your training in heaven when the time comes. 
And so don't worry about it. Uh, that'll happen. The Lord will take care of that. But we're going to return with him. And apparently we're going to be riding on horses. Now, this opens up a whole theology about animals in heaven. Uh, lots of big discussion about that. But uh, it just kind of, you know, may pique your curiosity on that. Now, Jesus is right now in heaven preparing a place for believers to be with him there. And Paul revealed that Jesus will return for his church and that all Christians will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the doctrine of the rapture was first presented by the Lord Jesus when he provided new information to his apostles on the night before his crucifixion. When you read John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those five chapters all take place in the upper room on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. It is five chapters. It is one discourse. Well, it's four hours of discourse followed by a prayer. John 17 is is the prayer of the Lord. Uh, But that all takes place on the night before his crucifixion. So he's literally hours from the cross. He's hours from going to the Garden of Gethsemane, of being betrayed, brought before six illegal trials from midnight to 6 a.m., all under the cover of darkness. We're going to unpack the chronological aspects of the night before Christ's death and, and the day of his crucifixion. But he undergoes these trials and beatings and mockings and scourgings, and and then he's eventually handed over to be crucified, and he is crucified by 9 a.m. the next morning. So when you read those chapters in John 13 through 17, you have to put that context in the night before his crucifixion. And I find it interesting that he's going to a cross, he's going to beatings, he's going to trials and mockings and scourgings, and he knows what he's about to face. And yet, even on the night before his crucifixion, he spends his time uh, teaching the disciples and giving them the things they need to know to prepare themselves doctrinally for the trials that are going to be coming ahead. Now, that's discipline. That's discipline of mind, discipline of will, born out of a heart of love because he loves them enough to tell them the truth. And I think about that. If I knew that I was going to be facing those sorts of trials and the gross uh, miscarriage of justice uh, that is going to happen there during those civil and religious trials, those six trials in which it's going to be a complete mockery of justice. But if I knew that I was about to undergo that, plus the physical beatings and the crucifixion, I, I, it'd be hard for me to get two words out because I'd be very much distracted with that. And yet Jesus is focused. He's focused on his disciples and he's teaching them and uh, a great display of love. But in John 13, 33, it says, Jesus says, little children, I am with you a little while and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus, when he's going to the cross and of course, ultimately when he's going to heaven, uh, this is something that he has to endure alone. Uh, This is his destiny. This is what he was called into the world to do. But he lets them know that he's leaving. Now, this word of, them, of him leaving them, where he says, uh, he says, I'm leaving, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's troubling, because think about it. Remember, they have been walking with Jesus for about three and a half years now. And so they were tight, and they looked to the Lord. They trusted in the Lord. He was their leader. And now he's leaving them, and now they're almost in panic mode. They're almost in panic mode. And, uh, and so Jesus sought to comfort them. See, I love this because Jesus, even though he's facing the cross, he's going to comfort them at the troubling news he just gave them. Now think about that. I mean, talk about loving. Talk about focused. This is, this is, this is our Lord. I mean, this is brilliance on display. This is tremendous, tremendous self-control. 
And so Jesus comforts them. This is the one who's about to face the cross, and he's going to take a moment to comfort them, comfort them. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Because he knew that, that what he just told them was troubling news. He knew it. He knew it troubled them. Because he knows the thoughts of what's going on. He knows the trouble in their hearts. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I've talked about this before, so let me take just a moment here. When Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, the word troubled here translates the Greek verb terasso. Terasso. And the form of the verb, if you can see it on the page there at the bottom left, the verb is present, passive, imperative. It's a present passive imperative. Present tense means right now and ongoing action. It speaks to present truth and ongoing action. The passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. When you think about verbs, you think about active voice and you think about passive voice. Now in the Greek, there's a, uh, there's a, there's a middle form there, but the active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. When I played baseball, uh, growing up in Southern California for six years, I used to pitch. Now, if, if, I throw, if Steve throws the ball, that's active voice. I'm producing the action of the verb. But I also played catcher for a few years. So I knew what it was to receive the ball that was thrown, to be there behind the plate under all that gear, and especially in the summertime when it's August and it's hotter than blazes in the Southern California sun and you're beating down and you're sweating. Uh, but nonetheless, you're out there and you've got the ball coming at you. Well, when I caught the ball, that's passive voice. I'm receiving the action of the verb. That's what's going on here mentally. Jesus is telling them, uh, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, don't let your heart receive troubling news. And by the way, the imperative mood here is the mood of command. It's a directive. It's a command. And the imperative mood always assumes several things. It assumes, one, intellect, that you have the ability to understand the directive. It also assumes volition, that you have the ability to obey the directive. And it always assumes present and or future opportunity because you cannot command past action, right? So he tells them, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, do not let your heart receive news that upsets you because you have control over your mind. You have control over what goes into your mind and you have control over what goes on in your mind. At least you should. And this is part of the discipline of the Christian life. Uh, in fact, I started writing a book about a year ago, and I had to put it on hold because we're studying soteriology, but I'm going to get back to it, and it's the disciplined Christian life, because much of the Christian life is a discipline. It's a discipline of mind, a discipline of will, uh, in which we think about what we think about. And uh, we are able to take in the Word of God and to be able to frame life from the divine perspective. And 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Think about that, that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And much of the Christian life is right here. It's in your mind. It's what you think. And that's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. 
And so you spend a lot of time expunging or removing human viewpoint that you took in via TV, literature, music, conversations, culture at large, where Satan operates, where he pr promotes his philosophies and ideas. And you spend a lot of time identifying that, expunging that, removing that out, and replacing that with divine viewpoint. That is taking in the Word of God and thinking God's Word. Because if you're going to live the Christian life, you have to be able to think. And you have to be able to think divine viewpoint and to take God's word and to be able to evaluate your own thoughts, look at that thought and say that is a sinful thought, isolate that thought um, and marginalize it. And because you realize it's aberrant, it's destructive, it's not from God, and therefore it can cripple you, it can take you down. And so you, you, margin, you separate that thought out and then you replace it with divine viewpoint. And that's what Jesus is teaching them to do right here. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. In other words, don't let your thoughts go down that rabbit hole, fellas. And then what's the solution? Because you can't simply tell somebody not to do something. You have to give them something positive in place of that. What's the positive? Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's faith. And by the way, John uses here the verb pastuo 98 times. 98 times. More than the other three gospel writers combined. John loves the word believe. He loves that word, and he uses it 98 times throughout his gospel. And, uh, and when, when a writer uses a word that many times, repetition, he's, he's telling you something, right? He's telling you something very, very important. So he says, believe in God, uh, believe also in me. In other words, don't focus on the thing that is upsetting you. Focus on God the Father. Focus on me. In other words, faith demands an object, and faith here is a transitive verb. A transitive verb simply means it's a verb that demands a direct object. If you were standing on a corner and I came running up to you and I said, do you believe? You'd look at me and say, believe what? Because you understand faith demands an object. It must have something to believe. People say, just believe. You can't. You have to have something or someone in which or whom to believe. And so Jesus is focusing their faith here in God. Believe also in me. He then says, in verse 2, he moves on to not only getting their focus upon God and upon Christ, but upon things heavenly and things eschatological. He's talking about things in heaven and things uh, future. In other words, how do we cope with the pressures of life? Because remember, adversity is inevitable, but stress in the soul is optional. You can't control the adversities of life. It's going to happen. Things are going to up, up change around you, and some of it's going to be upsetting. But you can regulate what goes on in your soul. We can take up the shield of faith as Christians. We can frame things from the divine viewpoint. Now, there's times where things may hit you and blindside you and send you reeling for a minute, and that's fine. Uh, collect your thoughts, get yourself together, recognize the sinful thought, uh, separate it uh, as aberrant, put it off to the side, replace it, put your mind upon God. And what he's doing here is he's getting them to think upon God, upon Christ, and he's also getting them to think upon things heavenly and things future talking about the coming of Christ. Notice what he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. You see? Now, where is he talking about? He's talking about things heavenly. What does Colossians 3, 1 and 2 tells us? Set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth. Listen, it's easy to get caught up in the things of this world. Very easy. Very easy. And years ago, I used to be a news junkie. And eventually, I just got to the point, I had to shut it off uh, because it was just information overload. 
And I just have uh, too much going on in my life to spend my you know, concerns about everything that's going on around the world. I mean, do I care? Yes. Do I pray? Yes. Uh, but I really had to simplify my life and spend more time in the Word than on the news. Um, but, uh, but so anyway, so, but Colossians 3, 1, set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth. Isaiah 26, 3 says, the mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. The mind, think about that. The mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. When your mind is upon the Lord, you have that peace going on in your soul that you know what I'm talking about. When your mind is upon anything and everything other than God and his word, you, by your own decision of of focusing on these things rather than God and his word, you forfeit that peace. And so again, Isaiah 26, 3 says, The mind that is stayed upon thee, that is stayed upon thee, shall be kept in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. And so Jesus is getting them to think upon the Father, upon him, and upon things heavenly. I will go, I will come again. He says in verse 3, now he's talking about things eschatological. See, the study of prophecy is very, very important. I mean, some people don't like to study prophecy. I don't understand that. That's just crazy talk to me. Because 25% of the Bible's prophecy, either fulfilled prophecy or unfulfilled prophecy. And unfulfilled prophecy, well, a fulfilled prophecy, by the way, it was fulfilled literally. Literally. Well, how is unfulfilled prophecy going to be fulfilled? Literally. Because Christ is coming back. You see, history's going somewhere. Christ is coming back. This isn't just these, you know, like, uh, like marbles rolling around on a board, just sort of like, you know, historical events just sort of like loosely just happening. God is in sovereign control over the events of this world. And he's either causing some things to happen, he's permitting some things to happen, but he is always the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so he says, he says if I go and prepare a place for you, and he, and he is, he just said he is, he says, I will come again. So he's promising here to come back and receive you to myself. Now, where is he going? He's going to heaven, and he's going to prepare a place for us there. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where is that? Heaven. There you may be also. Now, that's encouraging to me, right? Because one of the benefits of coming to faith in Christ, of believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior, believing that he died for me, was buried and raised again on the third day, when I trust in him and him alone as Savior, not in anything or anyone, I trust in Christ and Christ alone. I'm forgiven all of my sins. I'm given eternal life. I'm given the, the gift of righteousness. I'm given a spiritual gift. I got my spiritual gift of teaching when I was eight. I didn't know it at the time. I had to learn it, had to grow into it, had to study, prepare for it, and exercise it to the best of my ability. But we all get a spiritual gift, and uh, we are blessed by the Lord tremendously. And, uh, and so we live our time on this earth with this wonderful life, but we know that we are leaving this world. See, we are not going to the lake of fire. That will never happen to the Christian. Not. Jesus said, or excuse me, Romans 8, 1 says, there, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus, in Christo, in Christ, that prepositional phrase means that we are in Christ and God will no more send us to the lake of fire than he will send Christ to the lake of fire. Impossible. Can't happen. Can't happen. But he says that where I am, there you may be also. So the place where Jesus was going was heaven, and the purpose of his going was to prepare a place for them. And at some unspecified time, Jesus promised that he would come again and receive them to himself, that they may be with him. Now, Paul talks about the rapture. Paul talks about this event in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Paul described this as a time here, and I'm going off the notes, 
when we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is as Christians, shall be what? Changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So there's going to come a point where this body, with all of its flaws, because this body is in decline. I'm 56, but I'm wearing out. I've got arthritis. I have neuropathy. I have back pain. Uh, my body's failing me. They say it's not the years, but the mileage. And I've got a lot of mileage on my body. I played hard when I was young. Uh, did construction for many, many years, was a forest firefighter for several years, rode dirt bikes, uh, got in a lot of fights. I was a troublemaker and I wore my body down. Now I'm paying for it. Okay. So what do you do? Well, you lick your wounds, you move on. Uh, that's you get on with life. But I'm looking forward to the day. Now, if the rapture were to occur, the dead in Christ, that is believers who have died during the dispensation of the church age, they're going to be raised. So they're going to come out of the grave. And their bodies, are, they're going to have new body. By the way, that's called resurrection. Now, we drew a distinction last time between resuscitation and resurrection. Jesus brought a lot of people back to life, but they died again. You see, now that's called resuscitation. Resuscitation is when they're brought back to life only to die again. Resurrection's different. Resurrection means you're brought back to life and you will never die again. Your, the, the sin nature is removed. You no longer have that sinful proclivity to even want to sin. And you have a new body uh, that is perfectly fine. And we talked about, remember Jesus in his resurrection, how he could appear and disappear. He could be in a room. He could eat or drink. He could felt. I mean, there was a lot of things he could do in his resurrection body. And it was really quite fascinating. So it kind of gives us a glimpse as to what our resurrection body will be like as well. But at the time of the rapture, we will be changed. We will be caught up and instantly in the twinkling of an eye. It will happen that fast. And I don't know if anybody's timed that. I'm sure some scientist has. If you, if you know the answer, you can shoot it out to me later. Uh, but in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be changed. It's going to happen so fast. You're going to be driving down the road. You're going to be sleeping. You're going to be eating dinner. You're just about to take that bite. And bam! Change. Caught up. Meet the Lord in the air. Body change. Just like that. Quick. And, uh, and it'll happen really, really fast. So I'm looking forward to it. I hope I'm part of that generation. I'm very much, very much looking forward to that. Um, but that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about when we will be changed. He goes on, now going on the notes here, and when writing to the church at Thessalonica, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, he explained that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, when a person dies, and I've preached a number of few, uh, funerals, uh, probably about six or seven over the years of my ministry. I've done about 20, 20 weddings, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, but I've done some funerals. But one of the things that I point out is that when a person dies, death does not mean cessation of life. Often we think of death as cessation, that, that a person ceases to be. No, no. Death means separation. It means separation. And physical death is when the, is when the immaterial part of a person is separated from the body. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 says, And the body shall return to the dust, and the spirit, the ruach, shall return to God who gave it. And so it's the separation of the soul from the body. That's what happens at death. And so when a believer, when a Christian dies and that body goes into the grave, it's almost like a seed planted in the earth. Because that body will come out of the grave, and it will be, it will be changed. And resurrection is the undoing of death. It is when the soul and body are reunited. You see, God intends for the body and the soul to be together forever. 
And when God created Adam, remember, go back to Genesis chapter 2. And if you could imagine, God creates Adam. And remember, he comes into the garden and he forms the dust of the earth. Remember that? He forms the body, the biological life of Adam from the dust of the earth. And then it says that the Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the nachshamah chayim. And you can almost imagine God there in theophonic form, and he's, he's there with Adam, who's in biological life, and he breathes into him, and he, and he breathes into him the breath of life, the nefesh. And Adam, and in that moment, he takes that breath, and now he is a composition of both body and soul. You see, there is, a, there is a material aspect to every person, but inside of you is something that I can't see that, uh, that I can't put under a microscope. I can, put, I can take your brain, you know, when you're dead, and uh, we can slice it up and we can look at it under a microscope, but I cannot put a thought under a microscope. And a thought is, the, is tied to the immaterial aspect of who you are. You see, and so there are aspects of who we are immaterial that is really the thought uh, the, the will, the emotions, those aspects of our being that are immaterial in nature. And so at death, there's that separation, and at the resurrection, that's the reuniting. It's the bringing them back together forever. But Paul says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is, believers who have died, they will come out of the grave. Then we who are alive, so if the rapture were to occur right now, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up now, there's, that's the key word, shall be caught up together with them, that is, with those resurrected uh, believers who come out of the grave, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. So that's where we're headed. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Now, now the word here, caught up, translates the Greek word harpazo, harpazo. And according to Badag, uh, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, uh, means to grab or to seize suddenly so as to remove or gain control, to snatch away, to snatch or to take away. In other words, it means to seize by force. It means when God is ready to remove his church, he's going to reach down and literally yank you out of the earth. It's going to happen so fast. You're going to be literally snatched away. You're going to be yanked out of the earth. And so it means to grab or to see suddenly. That's what that's. And by the way, the word rapture really comes from the Latin word rapturo, which comes from the Greek word harpazo. It communicates the same thing. And people get all caught up and they say, oh, well, the word rapture is, you know, not in the Greek New Testament. Well, guess what? The word Trinity in the Bible either, but it is a sound theological doctrine that nobody questions, unless you're a Mormon, I guess. Um, Anyway, going on in the notes here, John Wolverd states, quote, the important point is that the verse says that Christ will come for believers and take them from the earth to heaven, uh, where they will be in his presence till they return with him to the earth to reign. He says the rapture will mean that all believers will be with the Lord forever, enjoying him and his presence for all eternity, end quote. So once we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, we will be with the Lord for all eternity. So whatever's going on in this life, don't hold on to it too tightly because uh, you'll be taken up. Now, as Christians, according to Titus 2.13, which is another key passage there, we are looking forward. <clears throat> we are looking for what? What are we looking for? We're looking for the blessed hope and, notice, the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest, I, 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 I study prophecy. Uh, being a student of theology and the scriptures, I'm naturally uh, studying things eschatological in nature, and that's fine. But I'm, I, don't, I don't get so wrapped up in future events or the, or the decline of this world. It does bother me. Don't misunderstand. It tears up my heart. But what am I looking for? What is my focus? I am looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I am, I am looking forward to the rapture of the church. Okay? And what does he call this? He says we are looking for what? The blessed hope. Because that is the hope of Christians. Look, uh, look, this world is not reformable. It's not. And in the end, guess what? The church doesn't win. We don't convert the world. This is the devil's world. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to Satan as the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's called the God of this age. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In Isaiah 14, he's, he's described as one who has weakened the nations. In Revelation 12, 9, he is one who deceives the whole world. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this world is described as cosmos diabolicus, Satan's world system. And he is currently uh, in control of this world. Now, it is a temporary thing. God permits this. And Satan is on a leash. Remember that. He never, he never operates willy-nilly. Remember when Job, uh, when Satan wanted to come after Job, he had to get what? Permission from the Lord. And you have this whole angelic encounter where God, where the Bible pulls back the curtain and gives us the glimpse into this heavenly scene where in Job 1.6 it says that there was a day when the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, that's the angels, came into the presence of the Lord and Hashatan, the Satan, came among them. And there's this dialogue between God and Satan and these angels here. And, uh, and uh, Satan, and they begin to have this discussion about Job, which God brings up, by the way. He's, he's kind of bragging on Job a little bit. He's like, have you seen my servant Job? Yeah. He's the man, Steve's paraphrase. And, uh, and then Satan, of course, throws out that, well, does he serve you for nothing? In other words, he accuses God of, of basically, you bought him off. You, know, you blessed him, you put a hedge about him. I can't touch him. I praise you too, you know. Uh, and I think Satan understands human nature, by the way. Uh, but touch all that he has and he'll curse you to your face. And so God allows Satan a modicum of freedom to operate only to prove his point. And Job is a man of integrity. In fact, in Job 13, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's faith. And that's faith to the core. And Job had that. And Job had his problems. Don't get me wrong. He gets rebuked in the end. God has to uh, chastise him and straighten him out on a few things. But Job holds his own. In fact, in Job 2.9, when Job's wife comes to him and gives him bad advice, what does she say? She tells him to curse God and die. That's not very good advice. Uh, that's not very good theological advice. <laughs> But he looks at her and he says, he says, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity also? So my point is, is that when you think about this world system, it's easy to get caught up in this world system and to understand its fallenness. Listen, there's many, many flaws. And we understand a lot of the spiritual forces of things that are going on in the background. Remember in 2 Kings 6 when Elisha and his servant were up in the upper room and there was an army that was sent against Elisha. Remember that? And his servant wakes up in the morning, goes to take a sip of coffee and looks out the window and he sees this army and his eyes get as big as quarters and he's like, oh my, what are we going to do? And there's almost panic in his voice because he comes to Elisha and he says, what are we going to do? And Elisha, he's cool. 
He's totally cool. He's, to, he's, he's relaxed. And it's such a contrast of characters here because his servant's almost in panic mode. And Elisha's cool. And Elisha says, uh, well, don't worry. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Now, he, now his servant's like, I don't get it. Am I missing something? And the Lord prays that he opened the servant's eyes. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes. And the mountain was full of what? Chariots of fire. An angelic army sent to protect Elisha. And Elisha was able to remain cool because he was able to frame the situation from the divine perspective. He was able to understand and to see what was going on in the angelic realm and to see what is going on behind the scenes. And we look at the world. We see the politics and the news and the economics and the academics. And we say, oh, isn't that terrible? Isn't man uh, by and large terrible? And I say, yes. But understanding the Bible means that you understand that there are things going on in the angelic realm and that there are wars and battles taking place between angels and demons and that there's a lot of demonic forces driving a lot of what we see going on in the political spectrum, in the political theater. And you understand that. And you also understand that behind that is a sovereign God who created the universe, who is allowing these things to happen temporarily and who is directing history to the return of Christ because Christ is coming back. And you can be confident. You can, you can rest assured in these things. You're not like the rest of the world. You're not like in panic mode. And so we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And this rapture is imminent, by the way, meaning it can happen any time. We don't know. This week, next week, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm rapture ready. So the rapture is imminent, meaning it may occur at any time and without prior notice. And all Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, will go with him to heaven, and will be saved from the wrath to be poured out during the seven-year tribulation. You see, our future is not one of judgment. Rather, we are assured that we will be saved from God's future wrath both in time and eternity. Notice Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be what? What's the word? Saved. There's our Greek verb, sozo. We shall be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God through him. And notice 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Well, let me back up to verse 9 here. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. He's talking about Christians. And to wait for his son, that's Jesus. What are we waiting for? His son. Where's he at? He's in heaven. So he's coming from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who what? Rescues us. He's going to save us. From what? From the wrath to come. Because there is going to be seven years of God's wrath upon this earth, and it's going to rise in escalation. You read Revelation 16 through 18. You'll see the seal judgments. You'll see the trumpet judgments. You'll see the bowl judgments, and you'll see the judgments rise in escalation. But we will be safe. See, this is the eschatological aspects of the soteriological aspect of the, of the role of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus not only saves us from our sins, he not only saves us from the lake of fire, he not only saves us from this world at the rapture, but he saves us from the wrath to come. See, he's a savior in many ways. And we just sometimes narrow it down to one little thing and we fail to understand the theological significance of what it is that we are saved from. And when you really mind the depths of this, it just blows your mind. Now, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we have Jesus returning with his saints. 
When Jesus returns to the earth after the time of the seven-year tribulation, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And this is a time when humanity will be saved from the tyranny of Satan who rules over this earth. And you can check the footnote on that. Because in the footnote, I give you all of the references that I just cited from memory a moment ago pertaining to Satan. And there's probably a few others in there too. Uh, but uh, Satan currently rules as a tyrant over this earth. Now at his second coming in Revelation 19, it is written, And the armies which are where? In heaven. So right now, rapture occurs. Everybody in this room, everybody online uh, who's watching this live, uh, we're all caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're up in heaven. We're with him. We get resurrection bodies. That'll be, that'll be starter number one. Be good. I'm happy with that. Okay? But it gets better. Uh, we get to uh, get rewards for the life that we've lived, the kindness that we've shown to others, the cup of water, the drink, the kindness of visiting somebody in prison, those sorts of things. All these things, uh, God keeps a record of, and we're going to be rewarded for that in heaven. Then we're going to get our horse training. Uh, we're going to be assigned a horse. Uh, I'm going to name mine Bucky. I've already got a name for him, so that's okay. You can name your horse if you want to. Uh, but we'll get a horse. We'll get our training. And then we are going to uh, be part of that army that will return with him, which is both angelic and human, by the way. So Revelation 19, 14 says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So there you have it, okay? Now concerning this passage, Earl Rodmacher, whom I like, he says, quote, The armies in heaven may be angelic hosts. I do think that's true. He says, But Revelation 17, 14 speaks of those with the Lord at his coming as being called, chosen, and faithful all terms for believers. Romans 1.7, we are called saints. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, we are called saints. We're also called faithful. And in 1 Peter 2.9, we are called chosen. So all these terms refer to believers. Warren Wearsby adds, he says, We're, uh, certainly the angels are a part of this army, but so are the saints. That's us. By the way, the word saint... Uh, I'm sorry, the Roman Catholic Church has totally butchered it. They have this super category, the super classification, these super holy people. That's nonsense. The word saint is just a synonym for a Christian. That's all it is, just a synonym for a Christian. We have St. Dan, St. Nancy, St. Leslie, St. Uh, Levi, St. Uh, Mia, and Roxy over here. We got St. Sherry in the Lex room, uh, St. Steve right here. So we're all present, right? So it's just a synonym for a Christian. That's all it is. That's all it is. So don't, don't create the super classification. There's no biblical basis for that. Norman Geisler. I like Geisler. He says, before the tribulation, Christ comes, notice, for his bride. That is, he comes for the church. So the next prophetic event is the rapture. And Christ is coming for the church. That's us. Us who have believed in Christ, who have been placed into the body of Christ. Then... Seven years go by, tribulation, God pours out his wrath upon the earth. Many people get saved. There are millions and millions of people who get saved during the time of the tribulation. By the way, there may be people you know right now that are unbelievers. That if the rapture were to occur right now, if they survive the seven-year tribulation and come to faith in Christ, they will walk into the millennial kingdom. And so when you come back on your horse and your resurrection body, you'll get to meet them. So people you know now, you may serve with in the millennial kingdom. It's not that far away. Seven years is not that long. Trust me. So before the tribulation, Geisler says, 
Christ comes for his bride. Then, at the end of the tribulation, seven years later, he will return with all his saints. And then here he cites Jude 1.14, where Jude wrote, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Uh, Geyser closes out. He says he cannot come with them until he has first come for them. And we have identified the time interval between these events as seven years. That's the tribulation period. H. Wayne House, another outstanding Bible scholar, says, It is important to remember that when we say the second coming of Christ, that we are not talking about the rapture. See, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. He says, when we're talking about the second coming of Christ, we're not talking about the rapture. That occurs prior to the second coming. The rapture is most clearly presented in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. It is characterized in the Bible as a translation coming in which Christ comes, notice, for his church. The second advent is Christ returning with his saints, descending from heaven to establish his earthly kingdom. And when he returns, Zechariah 14.4 says, in that day, on the day when Christ returns to the earth, and he'll return to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is currently under attack. Okay, Israel's under attack. And uh, we've been watching that on the news, and we're praying for them. Uh, But that's where Christ's going to return. Notice Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet, that's the feet of Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union, by the way, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you ever read Matthew 24 and 25, you'll read about the the, uh, Sermon on the Mount. That is the Mount of Olives. And so he will return, will stand on the Mount. So he will come down from the sky, will come with him. He'll come down on a horse. We're on horses too. He'll come down and then with his feet, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And notice what happens when he stands on that mountain and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. That is going to be an earth shattering event in which he comes down and when he lands on the mountain, the mountain's literally going to split in two. I mean, you talk about a heavy touchdown, (laughs) Uh, but that's the impact of our Lord at his second coming. Now, at his second coming, Jesus will also put down all rebellion. Remember, he came the first time as the Lamb of God. Remember, John 1, 29. In John the Baptist, when he saw the Lord Jesus, he said, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when he returns, he returns as what? As the Lion of God of the tribe of Judah. And so when he comes back, remember he's coming back to reign as king upon the earth. He will rule over the whole earth for a thousand years and he must put down rebellion. He cannot, he cannot reign while there's rebellion and he's going to put down rebellion in two realms. In the angelic realm, he's going to, he's going to bind Satan for a thousand years. He's going to, we don't know, there's no word about the demons, but they're going to be dealt with as well. And he's going to put down human rebellion. Because you have this great battle that's going to take place at the end of the tribulation called the Battle of Armageddon, uh, from really from the Hebrew word Har Megiddo, which is the mountain of Megiddo. But the Battle of Armageddon is where all the armies of the earth, led by Antichrist and his false prophet, will come together to rise up against the Lord. It's a form of insanity because what are you going to do? All of humanity is going to rise up against God? Give me a break. It's not going to happen. So anyway, when Christ comes back, he's going to put down all rebellion, both human and satanic. The two main leaders of the world, the Antichrist and his false prophet, will be thrown alive 
into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. See, they're not even going to be sea death. They're going to be literally thrown alive into the lake of fire. Furthermore, those people who followed Antichrist, it says that they were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. In other words, God is going to call the birds of the earth to come and to feast. It's kind of gory, but you've watched TV. You've probably seen a few battle scenes, so you're not put off by this. He's going to call for the birds of the earth to come and to feast upon the flesh of, of these dead bodies. Of, uh, of people and animals. And so it's, it's going to be this, uh, this uh, really horrific event. Afterwards, the Lord will send one of his angels to arrest and imprison Satan. So Satan's going to get arrested, that rascal. He's been roaming around causing trouble for too long. And at the time of the millennial reign of Christ, an angel, it says, is going to come down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great change in his hand. Verse 2 tells us, and he laid hold of the dragon. He grabbed that ruffian by the back of his neck, and uh, he, he lays hold of him. He arrests him. He lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So he's going to put handcuffs on him, and he's going to throw him into some spiritual prison. We don't know where that is, but he's going to be bound. He's going to be incarcerated. By the way, even after a thousand years in prison, you think Satan's going to be reformed? No! Because prison doesn't reform anybody, let me tell you. Um, and when he gets out, he's going to come out and cause trouble like he did before. Because he was a rascal going into prison, he's going to be a rascal coming out of prison. That's just Satan. He's just that. He's not reformable. He's not reformable. Uh, and so it says here, and he, that is this angel, threw him into the abyss, this spiritual prison, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. So John tells us uh, these things. Now, this will be a time of global deliverance from evil as Messiah reigns over all the earth in perfect righteousness. So you see how at the second coming of Christ, this also is a soteriological event. This is a salvation event because he's saving the world from, uh, from its time of tribulation and from the activities of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of these people who have aligned themselves against God and Messiah. And so Christ comes back and he removes these uh, persons and, and, and Satan and demons that are in rebellion to him, and he, he deals with that. And then, after he has put down rebellion, then he establishes his kingdom on the earth, in Jerusalem, on the throne of David, where he will rule over the earth for a thousand years. It'll be a good time. We'll be there in resurrection bodies. But both of these, often we look at these, in, again, in an eschatological sense, in a prophetic sense, pertaining to these future events of the rapture and the second coming. But often we don't think of them it, with regard to their soteriological significance. And that's the point of this lesson, is that we're talking about soteriology. We're talking about ways that God saves us. Because God saves his people in many different ways, physically, uh, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, uh, but he also saves us, uh, in this case, uh, by means of the rapture and then also at the end of the tribulation at the time of his second coming. So this may be new to some of you. You may have never thought about these particular events uh, in relation to uh, soteriology or the study of salvation, or, or maybe you have. Maybe, maybe I'm the person who's, uh, who doesn't know. And look at that. I went one minute over. How about that? See, not too bad. 
All right, so that is going to close out this lesson. We've covered these two, and I got through it. See, I was afraid I wouldn't. You know, you chase rabbit trails. What happens is I wind up yak-yakking and chase a rabbit trail here and talk about a Greek verb and, you know, or some Hebrew phrase, and you chase off when you talk about something theological, and then I'll start talking about some concept or extrapolate some theological truth or something, and I'm off and running, and then once I'm off and running, it's hard to pull me back. That's why I use notes, because notes keep me focused. They keep me on track. Wrong with nothing well nothing wrong with rabbit trails either i get that. i've had people say you know i was listening to your lesson it was the rabbit trail i enjoyed and it was like okay <laughs> uh you, you just you never know god the holy spirit can use those sorts of things okay so we'll go ahead and uh, stop that there and uh, i will go ahead and uh put a stop on the live stream since we are finished with our bible lesson at this time and will does have a question and <clears throat> and will has a question Okay, Will. Hey, good evening, Dr. Cook. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good, buddy. Another great um, exposition, so thank you very, very much. And you're right. A lot of us, at least me, was never thinking until after this class and your last class, which I listened to a few days ago before I came on here, but you said that, um, well, you stated that during the tribulation, some people that are not saved might be saved, number one, and then into the millennium. They might go into the tribulation unsaved, but into the millennium saved. Is that what you meant to say? So let me let me clarify that. Um, right now, think about this. If the rapture were to occur, all believers are taken off the planet. So for a brief moment of time, maybe just a few seconds, there will be nothing but unbelievers on the planet. If, if the rapture occurs right now, all believers are gone. During the time of the tribulation, there will be millions of people that will come to faith in Christ during the time of the tribulation. Now, among those who come to faith in Christ, they're, they're going to fit into two groups. There are those who will be martyrs during the tribulation, who will die because of their faith in Jesus. They will die as a believer. They will suffer a martyr's death. But there will be believers during the time of the tribulation who will survive the entire seven years. Now, when you get to Matthew chapter 25, you have this judgment of the, of, of the sheep and the goats. Uh, in Matthew, 20, Matthew 24 and 25, in their entirety, refer to the time of the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. Now, think about that. In Matthew 25, when you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats, that is Jesus at his second coming. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, he's going to judge the sheep and the goats. Who are the sheep and the goats? Those are people who survived the seven-year tribulation. The goats are unbelievers. The sheep are believers who, who got saved during the time of the tribulation. The unbelievers are removed from the earth. And only believers who survive the tribulation are those who will enter, they will physically walk into the millennial kingdom. And so for a, just like, just like if the rapture were to occur right now, there will be only unbelievers on the earth. People will get saved during the time of the tribulation and they will walk into the millennium. Now the millennium will start with believers only. There will only be believers who will enter the millennium. See, this is where it gets tricky. I've taught on eschatology many times, but follow me here just for a moment. These unbelievers who walk into the millennial kingdom, they are mortal. They have a sin nature. They can sin. And they can die. 
Now, we come back with Christ, but we come back in resurrection bodies. We don't have a sin nature. We can't die. We are immortal in the, in the, in the fullest sense of the word. We are going to be living together uh, in the millennial kingdom. Now, those people who survive the tribulation, who come into the millennial kingdom, who are mortals, they will give birth to children. And those children will be mortals. And they will come into this world as little babies, little baloney loafs and bassinets, as I call them. And uh, they will come into the world, and they will have sin natures. And there will be people that will be born during the millennial kingdom who will be alive during the millennial reign of Christ, that even though they see the king upon the throne... Even though they serve under the greatest uh, king and kingdom of righteousness the world has ever or will ever see, they still reject him as Messiah. And at the, end of the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Satan is released in Revelation chapter 20, he comes out and he gathers the nations one, one final time. But who is it that he's gathering? He's gathering the children... Of, un, of people who were born during the time of the millennial kingdom and who rejected Christ, and when they have an opportunity to defy him, they take it. Now, God shuts it all down in a second. It doesn't go anywhere. You can read about that in Revelation 20. Uh, but does that help you understand the people and the chronology of events that are going on there? Does that help? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, my God. Yeah, 100, 100%. I was just trying to wrap that around my mind. How are you going to have... Which you read right into my second question, how you're going to have people in a glorified state and human beings in an unglorified state cohabiting together at the same time. That's very, very, that's just very interesting. Man. Sure it is. But, but remember, when Jesus was resurrected, that, right. he, that he walked among his disciples for 40 days before he was caught up to heaven. And you have a person in a resurrection body cohabiting with mortals during that time period. And what you have there is you have a preview of coming attractions. That's what it's going to be like during the millennial kingdom. Only we're going to have resurrection bodies and we're going to be mingling with people who, like the disciples, are mortals. And can we only assume that those people in the mortal body still going to have the same age span that we have, 80 to 100? Or? No, and that's a good question. We live, uh, you know, if we make it to 80, we're doing good. But during the millennial kingdom... Uh, people will live the entire period. The effects of the curse will be rolled back to such an extent uh, that life that life and the quality... I mean, the lamb's going to lay down with the lion. The child's going to play over the adder's hole. I mean, uh, dangerous things are almost done away with. Sickness is almost completely removed. It's going to be so idyllic. Uh, it's it's going to be as close to perfect as you can get, only there's still going to be sinful people in the world. And Isaiah makes a prophecy. He says, he says if, if a child does not make it to the age of 100, he's, he's thought to be accursed. But Isaiah says that people will live as long as trees. Now, there are trees that have been around for thousands of years. And, uh, and, uh, and to say that means that there will be people who will live the entire uh, time of the millennial reign of Christ. And if somebody dies, it's because they got out of line and basically they, they, um, uh, they had to be removed. <laughs> um, so during the millennial kingdom, that's right. I did a, I did a 27 part series on the basics of, uh, of theology and, uh, I'll send you the link to that. In fact, tonight when I send out the email, I'll include a link to that, but there's a section in my series of lessons where I touch on issues pertaining to prophecy and uh, and I deal with all of these events in those in those videos. So I'll send that to you, and and that will and hopefully that'll provide some material that might be helpful to you. This was very very 
Thank you very much. Thank you bet. You very much for, for Love the question, Will. Okay, we're going to go to Stephen and then to Mayor Mark. Okay, uh, Stephen, you, you, you had a question, buddy? Uh, hang, hang on, Mr. Tang. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think you just answered it. Oh. Um, thank <clears> you. <throat> I, I really appreciate that answer about the, um, people still living in the millennium, which kind of makes sense. Otherwise, what would be the point of what would be what would Jesus be uh, dethroning when when uh, people rise up at the end of at the end of the uh, millennium? Right. Uh, if there weren't um, people who were able to rebel at that. Point, at that right. Point. No, that's right. So at the end of the at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released, it says he comes out to deceive the nations one more time. Well, who is it that he's coming out to lead against in rebellion against Christ, except those who were born during the time of the millennium and who served under the reign of Christ but rejected him as Savior? Uh, and when given the opportunity to defy him under Satan's leadership, they jump on it. And, uh, and, and, and it just it speaks to the depravity of man and to the sinfulness of man and just how, how corrupt we are to the core of our being. Um, yeah, a lot going on there. Yeah. Well, I'm appreciating uh, being raptured at that point. I'm going <laughs> to hopefully not get on Bucky so that Bucky doesn't <laughs> me Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to have a wild stallion. He's going to be a good one, though. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> well, God bless you, and I thank you for your, for your time and your commitment to this work, man. I, I, I just... If I could jump, I would, man. It was just, it was just electric. I hear you. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate that, buddy. Mister, Mister Tang, you had a question or comment, or was that, uh, was that Titus? Who was that? Uh, this my first time, so I really thank God that I have learned many things. So thankful to you, Doctor Oh yeah, thanks, Mister Tang. I'm glad we glad we could have you join on board. Anybody else have any questions or comments? No. Nope. This class is uh, once a week, or It's once a week. It's every every Saturday at six p.m. Texas time. Yeah. Every Saturday, same time. Oh yeah. For me, Sunday morning five thirty. Okay. Five thirty. That's 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 me and Mar time. One final question. Uh, will you be putting on new notes next week? Because we're up to page 21, so are we getting new notes next week? Right. We finished the notes on the uh, on the uh, role of God the Son in soteriology. Next week I will send out an email because we started off with God the Father. We moved into God the Son, which we just concluded tonight. And next week we will pick up on the role of God the Holy Spirit pertaining to okay. soteriology. And I will get that in the email to you. And I don't remember how many... This, the notes on uh, the role of God the Son, I think, was 21 or 22 pages. Uh, the role on God the Holy Spirit is about 16, I think. Uh, I'm still writing. I'm so far ahead. I think I'm at about 119 pages in my notes right now. So I have to backtrack and think about what I've covered. But yes, I will get that out in the next email, first thing Monday morning. But that's where we're going. We're going into God, the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about spirituality. We're going to talk about what is it. We're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. How does he work in the world? I mean, it's, 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 this is some mind-blowing stuff. It's going to be good. For real. Thank you. Thank you. you Thank bet. you so much. You bet. Glad you all could join this evening. Any other questions before we close it out? Yeah. Did, I, did I ask for the uh, recording to be, to be sent? If I did not, would you send me uh, 
Yes, you did. Uh, I did see that pop up and I did grant permission from that. So it should be recording live on your end. By the way, if any of you have Zoom and you want to record these sessions, you can hit the record button. Uh, it does ask me to grant permission and I don't mind granting permission because this is free. I believe in grace. I never charge for anything, nothing, uh, because I believe in grace. When Jesus sent the disciples out in Matthew 10, he said, freely you received, freely give. That's called grace. And so everything I have, I give away. In fact, tomorrow I have a free book giveaway. All 11 of my Kindle books will be free for the next five days, starting tomorrow. And I'll send out a link on that, and you all can download that and share that with as many people as you like. Uh, love grace. Saved by grace, live by grace, die by grace. All right. But yes, anybody else have any questions or comments? Just wanted to say thank you so much. Oh, Susan, thank you so much. I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, I love it. Love the fellowship. Love the study in the word. So glad you were yeah, able. So, you so, are like dynamite. <laughs> well, thank, well, thank you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you should see me when I'm at the prison. I really get fired up over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, love you, Dr. Cook, and thank you very much. And everybody, God bless you all. All right, thanks. All right, well, let me close out with a word of prayer, and we'll call it quit, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together this evening, both in person and online. We thank you that we can uh, have this time of fellowship with you and in your word, that this can be a time of fruitful understanding, that we can grow in our knowledge, uh, that we can uh, be challenged by these things, Father, that we might not only become more stable in our souls, but that we might also learn to function more brightly as a light in a dark world. And Lord, help us to be a bright light in the things that we say, in the truth that we speak, in the love that we show towards others, in the kindness and in standing for righteousness and prayer. Father, help us, strengthen us in this dark hour to be servants of yours and to walk in the truth and to model the highest and best of what it means to be a Christian. Father, we thank you for these things and we thank you most of all that we can call you, Father, having believed upon your Son as our Savior. Father, we thank you. We pray that we will be challenged by these things that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.